Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Hello and welcome to Educational Renaissance Podcast. My name is Jason Barney and I'm here with Dr. Patrick Egan and Colby Atchison to discuss mirror neurons. Mirror neurons might not be something you're aware of, but Patrick discussed it recently in an article. One of the things we love to do here at Educational Renaissance is to look at new concepts in either neuroscience or you know, elite performance, positive psychology, and see how there are connections from recent research to the ancients. And so I think it'll be a great discussion here to talk with Patrick and Colby around mirror neurons, this space in the brain for imitation and how we're primed for that. So, uh, Patrick, why don't you get us started with framing our discussion in terms of what mirror neurons are, what, what's some of the research that you've read on that, and uh, and kind of introduce that idea for us. Mirror neurons is not something before I had read from you that I knew anything about or had heard of before. So, uh, give us the basics. So let's take a step back and just think about what neurons are. A neuron is a cell. It's a rather elongated kind of cell. And the importance of these is that they link up with one another. And our our brain is made up of these networks of neurons that store information. They store processes some of them fire automatically so that there are systems in our body that just work automatically because those neurons learned very early on in their existence to keep your heart going. Uh, There are other neurons that like to capture information. They are soaking in things from our environment to know that those stimuli are are either dangerous or helpful or help us understand our world better. And as they link up with one another, they are the basis for us storing information and creating meaning in our world. This could take us in the direction of that mind-brain duality, which one is creating the other and how do those, those work. But a subset of those neurons and an area of study that really emerged in the late 90s, early 2000s, was this sense that we tend to learn through imitation. We could call this the monkey see, monkey do kind of process. And we see this in our classrooms, right? Where one student acts a certain way and another student imitates them. Or we could do this to our students in a sense is do some kind of behavior and then call that back from them. There's this imitation that can go on. And so scientists were looking particularly for a neurological basis for that. And this whole journey of discovery of mirror neurons was the outcome of that. And there there was an initial wave of excitement 
about mirror neurons and journal articles published about that, TED Talks that disseminated that information. And there was a bit of a, a wild excitement about what these are and, and how they might impact education. And then there was a wave of skepticism. And that skepticism is based in our ability to access those neurons. To really study neurons, it's a pretty invasive procedure. You have to put probes deep into the brain. And not a lot of people are going to volunteer to have that done to them. Let's just be honest. And so really, I think that would be fun. I mean, <laughs> what what does it involve? Can you specify? Yeah, I, I mean, you, you poking basically, through my skull. Oh, yeah. You have to you get deep in the brain. And that means poking through the skull and, and all of that. So, you know, there are studies where for other reasons, surgeons had to get into the brain to do surgical procedures. And so they could ask those patients to volunteer to to have probes set up and do studies where you see images and and is there facial recognition that shows that imitation is going on so those studies can be done but it's in a limited subset of the population where you already have created access deep into the brain but that's not normally how <laughs> people aren't generally volunteering to do stuff like that. So all of that to say the whole world of mirror neurons is an emerging domain of science that has potential to help us understand in a deep way some of the mechanisms of learning. And yet it's also helpful to realize that there is a healthy amount of skepticism about the nature of these neurons, the even the existence of these neurons, and specifically what they're doing in all of the network of neurons in our brain. And now for a message from our sponsor. Rethink your why. As educators interested in renewing education for a new generation, Jason Barney's new book, Rethinking the Purpose of Education, helps you rethink learning objectives around moral, spiritual, and intellectual virtues. Get your copy of Rethinking the Purpose of Education by Jason Barney, available now through our website or at Amazon.com. I feel like this general idea has been referred to in my hearing quite a number of times. I remember being at a conference one time where the speaker made us all stand up and turn to our partner and had one person smile, like had us look at each other and one person smile and the other person basically like was almost forced to smile if looking into the eyes of someone else who's smiling. And so the idea is that we're so social creatures that we're, we're going to respond to kind of belonging and safety cues and triggers by in like tuning in with some other person that we're engaged with and I've heard this talked about with parent-child relationship and other things like that. So that I think there's this general kind of psychological mirroring that we engage in with one another as we connect emotionally. We end up mirroring as well as like what you're saying, the kind of general monkey see, monkey do. Is that some of what's going on in mirror neurons or how does that relate with the broader kind of learning idea 
of learning through uh, imitation and these mirror neurons. We can separate out the mechanics deep in our brain, the neurology, from what we might call a social and emotional connection we have with one another. That it's it's very obvious that we imitate one another and that we draw cues from things like little facial movements, inflection. A basketball player can learn to shoot a free throw by watching other skilled basketball players do that. But the question is, is that a neurological thing or are there lots of different systems that are operating to make that happen? And that's where that skepticism comes in. So what does that mean for us? We can go into our understanding of learning, knowing that something imitative is going on. It's really a question of, does that rest on mirror neurons specifically, or are there a ton of other systems that are operating that are making that happen? What One book that I have really enjoyed reading that brings this rich connection of neuroscience and education is a book called NeuroTeach. And it's really fascinating. They make one reference to mirror neurons, and they do so in a phrase called the mirror neuron effect. They hold that whole line of research at arm's length by adding that one word effect of saying, we know imitation is happening, and that's an important aspect of our learning process, but we're not solely going to land that on the mirror neurons, it's an effect. And so I think that's a helpful framework for us to think through as we progress through this discussion is we really are talking about an imitative or mimetic way that we interact with one another as embodied minds, you might say. I think about the article that you wrote on this topic and one of the summary sentences on the neuroscience side was whether mirror neurons actually exist, it does seem that there is a mirroring mirroring system in place, which gives us some potential to utilize imitation based on visual and motor imports. I, I found that really helpful because as the neuroscience folks continue to explore this question and engage in the research and observation to determine how this system might work, uh, the kinds of different neurons and how they relate to one another. We certainly can agree that in the classroom and in our own lives, both practically and cognitively, imitation plays a key role. And so diving into this topic as educators now is going to be very interesting, uh, specifically as we think about the visual and motor imports that you bring up. Now on the visual side, it makes a lot of sense to me that monkey see, monkey do, we we take something in visually and our brain goes through the process of understanding those movements and then can proceed to imitate those movements. So I think I I understand the the visual side, uh, the motor side, I'm still wrapping my mind around, but maybe Patrick, you could just kind of sketch for us broadly are these the two exclusive areas where mirror neurons are at work, uh, the, the visual and the motor, or are those the two main ones? So that actually 
addresses one of the areas of skepticism. Are there actually mirror neurons that are doing this work? Or is it just that the visual cortex and the motor cortex are really close to one another in the physical brain? So when you think about the way we see, light is coming in through our eyeballs and it hits a visual nerve. And that actually goes to the visual cortex at the back of the head. And so where we see is, is almost like it's a, a camera or a projector projecting these images that our brain understands in terms of like that electrical neuro current in the back of our brains. And it's really closely connected to our motor cortex. So we can see and act. So you can think about if I see a snake on the ground, the eyes want to be able to see that and immediately go to movement so I can jump away or freeze or something like that. The brain does not want us to think philosophically about that snake if I'm in danger. So when we think about how all of our brain is connected, it's, it has all of these protective measures so that visual and motor are connected really close together just in the way it's set up. And then the neocortex, the place where we do a lot of our higher reasoning is towards the front of the brain, actually far away physically from the visual and motor connections. So a lot of the mirror neuron stuff has to do with movement, visual cues, and, and the way those connect. So you can think about, well, where do those things occur in our classroom? Does that occur in doing recitations, for instance, or acting or coaching in sports and all of that, where you're taking in visual cues, connecting those to the motor cortex really rapidly? Well, then how do we draw that into higher levels of learning as well? And now for a message from our sponsor. Sign up for the Educational Renaissance newsletter. Stay connected to the EdRen community to deepen your understanding of education and hone your craft as a teacher. The Educational Renaissance newsletter comes out every Saturday morning sharing each new blog post. Subscribers also get advance notice on special offers. We promise not to fill up your email with endless advertisements. Become part of the Educational Renaissance community. Subscribe today at educationalrenaissance.com. At this point, I feel like it would be helpful to turn to the classical tradition of education and wisdom that we have from really people throughout time that might apply or note the actual factors in teaching or pedagogy that are going on here. I know you referenced earlier this idea of imitation or mimesis. Would you be willing to share with us how you see a connection here between this modern research idea and ancient wisdom for education? The basic idea here is that we've always known about imitation, haven't we? Before we ever explored neurons, the the classical writers were were queuing into something that there is a a positive imitative process. So if if you are going to apprentice somebody to be an artist or a poet, or a soldier, or a politician, or, or whatever these, these roles are, 
you can imitate the qualities of those masters. When you connect that to different kinds of skills, and these can be thinking skills as well, or writing skills, whatever the craft is that you're working on, you can coach students to imitate high-level performance in those areas. I want to give a shout out to the Searcy Institute. They, they've done a lot to really spell out what it can look like to do mimetic teaching, to craft a mimetic lesson so that there's that coaching in processes that help a student in lots of different subject areas. But that's all resting on this whole idea of imitation or mimesis that I think beautifully connects to this whole idea that we've explored at Educational Renaissance of apprenticeship, that we are coaching our students in the craft of learning in all of the liberal arts. So when we think about those liberal arts as arts, as things that you are going to grow into by practicing those arts, then then I think that whole imitation brain thing is really alive because it's not just bringing in information, it's actually processes, I'm being formed as a thinker. So that's the framework I think we can think through that connects up what's happening neurologically potentially with the ancient wisdom of how we think about the learning process. I think that idea of the visual motor connection too just is so important when you do think about apprenticeship in the arts, specifically in various types of skills or craftsmanship that we might want to train students in. Of course, there are the the kind of higher level trivium and quadrivium arts where you can't see someone doing something with your hands, but to have that kind of artistry idea in there as we do when we kind of lay that out in a apprenticeship in the art series that's on educational renaissance, that's really key that, that you have that showing the student how to do it first, that kind of, I am doing it now. And then we do it together. You sort of hold their hand through the process and then you have the student do it and give them feedback and practice. That's so crucial to the training in any type of art or skill like that. And again, we've, we've been doing this for, time immemorial. It's not something new. I think also of uh, how that applies to morality and not just artistry. I, I recently was quoting from John Amos Comenius, who said, for boys are like apes and love to imitate whatever they see, whether good or bad, even though not bidden to do so. On this account, they learn to imitate before they learn to use their minds. And so he's applying that to the idea that, you know, if if some students start doing something bad, other students are apt to follow. This is an aspect of human nature that we have seen for uh, generations. And so it's something that we as educators need to be aware of, that that possibility of imitation we want to use positively too with moral exemplars to put in front of our students so that they also are then kind of reading or seeing with their mind's eye people doing great and virtuous things and learning to imitate those as well as what to avoid. Right. And, and so to modify Comenius's quotation in light of this neuroscience, 
It's not that these boys are imitating before they use their minds. It's that they're using, they're imitating as they use their minds. In fact, actually God hardwired into us as humans neurologically this ability to imitate. And actually, I think, you know, the key insight here from Patrick's article is that imitation is a pathway of learning that we can use as educators strategically. I think about this idea that we look upon the master, as we've already talked about in this apprenticeship model of learning, we seek to imitate the master. And what comes out of that, if we're doing that in community, is a culture of imitation that is then self-enculturating. Because the more as I, as an individual, buy in to this imitation process and seek to imitate the master, the more I am leading by example in the classroom as a student and encouraging those around me, my peers, and also pursuing this vision of mastery. So I think we've been talking a lot about individual imitation so far in this podcast, but there's probably a dimension of this that entails collective imitation where we're going somewhere together. And that, in fact, when I'm learning how to write cursive as a second grader, and I'm particularly encountering a moment of challenge, do I give up at this moment as I write out my 10th cursive F? And I look to the peer next to me and I see that she is persevering through the challenge herself. That small moment of leaning on the strength of a peer in the imitative process is actually going to be just the strength that I need to continue in this process of imitation. So there's all sorts of possibilities here in terms of even the classroom culture we cultivate through imitation. Having brought up that idea of culture, I I think about the book, The Culture Code, which has this idea of the good apple and the bad apple and how we are set up to respond sympathetically or empathetically with those that are around us. And, And this is where I think it's helpful to think of multiple systems operating where at an emotional level could be a physical or relational level. We could even say at a spiritual level that we we desire connection with the people around us. And there's this sympathetic resonance that I draw from, from music. If you have a string instrument, if you play a G on one string and you've got an open G elsewhere on your instrument, when you play the one G, the other string will vibrate and you can physically see it vibrating. And that in music, that's called sympathetic resonance. But I think that happens to us as people as well. So it's very often the case, if somebody is crying or laughing in the same room as you, you often have this response to them that matches stride with them, that that you can't help but laugh yourself or or get misty eyed or or have a, a look on your face that connects to that emotion. It's that sympathetic resonance. And I think, Colby, that's what you're talking about is we can build a culture around that where there is that affective domain that we can cultivate as we all imitate with one another the correct response to things or an appropriate response to what we've read or what we've seen is 
part of what we're doing when we're imitating human responses to these things. And now for a message from our sponsor. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. And this very idea is, to me, both scary and comforting because there are so many ways that people that we don't have control over can unhelpfully cause discord to resonate within our communities, within our classrooms. And that is really frustrating as a leader because you can't control it. You can't control people and people will resonate with one another and sympathize with one another in ways that we might be able to see from one perspective are not entirely helpful for these students or um, for their parents or for the teachers. Like We're a complex community. We're a complex organism and a unique culture at whatever educational institution you are at or in your home. If you're a home educator, there are going to be things about the culture and that are going on that you wish were different, right? And um, and so I think it's important for us to bring that kind of idea of the atmosphere, the culture, the air down into the practices that we can strategically engage in. You might say the habit training that we can do to deliberately try and influence the culture. Because I think it is worth noting that at the end of the day, you don't ever have complete control over either an individual student or a classroom. We are dealing with human beings. They aren't robots where they just automatically repeat or imitate whatever you want. There's a complex set of systems that are going on there that interact with that. So maybe, Patrick, you could maybe close us out with some final thoughts around how uh, we can use habits as um, a way of engaging this kind of mirror neuron effect in order to help our culture grow and improve and and flourish both in terms of learning and artistry and morality. It's a beautiful question and and one that I'll I'll put some ideas out there. I ultimately think as educators think through this, there will be creative avenues you can explore and discover that will really fully realize this. The whole idea of control is an interesting one because it would actually be inappropriate for us to control others. And ultimately what habit training is about, what what we would want to promote is self-control to empower the students that are in our care to have that masterly control over themselves, that they can be self-directed individuals 
who, you know, as James puts it, you've got to learn how to control your tongue. And it's such a wild thing, you know, how many fires were caused by a little flame and the ship is guided by a little rudder. So think about just control of that one thing. An individual who is empowered to control that has a lot of self-direction in life, both moral and relational. So Plato and Aristotle both recommended for young learners to sing and to dance, that we should be doing both of these things to gain control over the mouth and over the body. And so that's not about me controlling them, but actually them following the pathway of beautiful music, beautiful poetry, beautiful movement. And by doing these things, we start a child on their journey of learning by acquiring control of the self in those two big areas. And then you can guide them towards learning higher ideas and and so forth and so on. So with those ideas in mind, I think it's a wonderful idea for us as teachers, as educators to involve movement, singing, vocal production into our classrooms as a fundamental operation that isn't just about like classroom management, but coaching our students into that pathway of self-control. Habit training envisions that more mature self. And so what I'm doing as a teacher implementing habit training is saying, this child can become their more mature self by practicing certain things, by implementing certain things in their life that is going to help them actually control their little cubby where they keep their books by keeping it neat and orderly. Now, does that help me as a teacher to maintain a more orderly classroom? Sure it does, but that's not the motivating force. The motivating force is actually the student's best interests, the student on that pathway to greater maturity. And that can happen through imitation. So I will show you what a neat and tidy cubby looks like. I will show you what good handwriting looks like as you fill out your homework steno. You know, there's lots of ways that I can show and then call the student to imitate that. But then I'm releasing the student to practice that. Show me next time and show me again. And now I'm setting them on a pathway of personal mastery. That pathway is so key to everything that we're talking about here on educational renaissance. It strikes me that this idea of mirror neurons and the broader connection to imitation as a primary form of learning and growth and development for our students, what bigger topic could there be? So there are many different connections here to the things that we as educators are doing every day. So I want to end our talk here by pointing you to some different resources that we have available for you online on the Educational Renaissance website. The first of those is Patrick Egan's ebook on habit training. So if you want to explore and you haven't downloaded that yet, I would send you to that page on Charlotte Mason's practice of habit training so that you can work through that and think through as a home educator, as a teacher, as an administrator, how you can guide a process in which students develop that self-control and self-mastery where they sow an idea and uh, a a new way of relating is modeled for students in a way that they can imitate 
and grow and develop through and make their own so that it is a habit and something that comes naturally. As Charlotte Mason says, habit is 10 natures. So we can overcome the the natural uh, downward movement of nature and uh, instead lift our students up. Also, if you're thinking about the development of artistry and skill and how we do this process of apprenticeship, I would point you to apprenticeship lesson plan format, which is under the classical tradition on our website. And then lastly, going deeper with habit training and development, go ahead and uh, download Patrick Egan's Habit Training 2.0. You really uh, can't afford not to go deeper with the idea of habit training because it is so central to that culture of your classroom or of your home. There is nothing more crucial than that we are setting up the rails for uh, students' habits to run upon. And so um, that's a great resource for you as well. Thank you, Patrick and Colby, for your thoughts today as we explored the idea of mirror neurons from modern research and the classical principle of mimesis or um, imitation as uh, we apply this work of learning to our classrooms and home education formats today. Have a great day.